What do you do when you are afraid? How do you deal with fear? And I'm not talking about momentary fear, like watching a scary movie or somebody jumps out and, you know, gets in your face as a prank. I'm not even talking necessarily about, you know, a scary situation. Somebody cuts you off in, in traffic or something, and there's that momentary fear. Those, those are important, too. But I'm talking about situations of deep and sustained fear. You ever been in something like that? Could be fear for the future, what's coming next, or I know what's coming next and I don't like it. I'm scared of it. It's going to be hard. It could be fear of failure. I don't know if I can live up to a situation or to somebody's expectations. Difficult situation in a job. It could be a fear of loss, something good coming to an end, someone you love. Leaving, moving away, passing away. How do you deal with fear? I think sometimes we deal with fear by just hiding, ignoring it, acting like it's not there. Well, I don't know what to do about it. I'm just going to go on. And there's some wisdom in that. But it can often leave the problem untouched and unchallenged and uninformed in our lives. And it's still there. I think sometimes we are tempted to do whatever we think we need to do to get by. And this is where at times we might justify bad or even sinful decisions, actions, ideas. Well, I just had to do that. I just had to get by. I was afraid and that's why I acted this way. So what should we do when we are afraid? How should we respond appropriately to fear? Because we cannot deny that it will come. Times of fear will come. Open up to Ezra chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, should be one in the, the seat in front of you. If you're struggling to find Ezra, look for First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Those are really big books. You can find it right after Second Chronicles. Might help. I get it. I feel it too. I've been in ministry like twenty some years. I'm still like, oh my goodness, what if I can't find it? What if I can't get there? Talk about facing fear. Like when you're the pastor and you can't find a book, that looks bad. <laughs> maybe you can identify, or maybe you're judging me. That's okay. What do we do when we face fear? I make jokes. That's what I do. (laughs) Today, I want to look at fighting fear with worship. And, And that might seem like completely apples and oranges unrelated. Fear and worship. What, what do they have to do with each other? How do we fight fear with worship? And I'm going to kind of give you the end right here at the beginning. This is where we're going. Worship of God overcomes fear of this world. Because when we are more amazed and enthralled and captivated by who God is, rather than the situation we are in, we will worship him rather than fearing a situation. Doesn't mean we won't feel fear or at times be afraid, but we will not be consumed by it or defined by it. 
I want to give some background. I'm probably going to do this every week because Ezra and Nehemiah are, are sort of obscure books to a lot of people. So to give you a little bit of history here, God called this man Abraham into a relationship with him. And from Abraham, he, he develops the Israelite nation. And these are God's special people. He is going to work in and through them to bless the whole world with the truth of who he is. Because we're sinners, we turned away from God. And this is God's rescue plan. The Israelites, through a whole series of historical events, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. It wasn't necessarily that they did anything wrong. They had to go there. Things were rough in the land that God promised them. There wasn't enough food. They went to Egypt. They're enslaved. And they're stuck. God raises up Moses, delivers them out of Egypt. Maybe you know the story, the crossing of the Red Sea, giving of the Ten Commandments. He brings them with Moses as their leader into the promised land and establishes them back there. And through a long account of history throughout the Old Testament, we read of the ups and downs of the Israelite people. They're faithful, love the Lord, things are great, serving the Lord, being totally obedient. Then they're not. And then they're disobedient. And they're running after idols. They're running after anything that can help them instead of turning to the Lord. And then he brings them back and they're obedient and they're on fire for him and they're totally trusting him and they're all about God and, and then they're not. And it's just up and down and up and down. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing some of us can identify with that. Over time, God begins to send prophets and he warns them, return to me, trust me, be obedient to me, live for me. I love you. I've established you in this land. I have a plan for me, for you, but you keep turning away and I am going to have to discipline you. It's coming. Have you ever done that with your kids? Hey, you really should stop that. I don't want to have to punish you. I don't want to have to discipline you, but I have to. If I'm a good parent, I might have to. You need to stop that. You need to stop that. And then, you know, they keep going and then you're, okay, here's the discipline. Time out. Take it away. Spanking. But, you know, maybe something. <laughs> what? Who would do that to a child? <clears throat> and then they look at you like, how could you? What do you mean, how could I? I've been talking about it for the past half an hour. I told you exactly what was going to happen. And that's what the prophets are doing and what God is doing through the prophets. And they warn. And they call them back. And the Israelites refuse. Kingdom ends up in civil war and it's split. Northern kingdom's taken into exile by the Assyrians. Southern kingdom ends up being conquered years later by the Babylonians. And the Israelites are taken out of their home away from the promised land of God, and they're scattered among the nations. And there they sit thinking everything has fallen apart. God's promises have come to nothing. We have been completely disobedient. And the question lingers, is there any hope for us? And that's where the books of Ezra and Nehemiah pick up the story because it's the account of God calling them back home to their land and him saying, this is the time I'm going to fulfill the promises I gave to you so long ago. This is it. And so at the beginning of Ezra, we looked at the Israelites returned back, some of them, uh, to the land of Israel. And uh, they have this plan. They're going to rebuild the temple of the Lord. So that's where we are kind of historically as we pick this up. And we're jumping into chapter three. And we need to look at what it 
the fear that they have to face. Okay, so we've got to look at their context before we can apply to ours. So let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and look at the fear that they face. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God, of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Did you catch that phrase? despite their fear. It's just so important to understand that phrase because this is a key theme that's going to come up again and again in the book of Ezra, going to come up again and again in the book of Nehemiah. As we look at it, there are these moments of real, tangible, threatening fear that they have to respond to. And the way they respond is so informative. So here they are. Now, what is it that they're afraid of? They have come back from being scattered among the nations and they've come to Jerusalem, right? The holy city, the great city, God's promised land. Jerusalem is in ruins though. There's not much there. Few people have lived there over the years, kind of ragtag groups, but it is not what it was. It has no city or no wall to protect it. Most of the the buildings have been destroyed. The temple of God has been completely leveled. It's gone. So they've moved back to an area that does not offer protection to them. You also have to understand when the Israelites were taken into captivity, one of the strategies of these foreign empires when they conquered someone is they would remove some of the people and then take other people from around the empire and relocate them there. How would you like that? You're just minding your own business and you get a call. Hey, uh, we just conquered so-and-so and and you got to move. Okay. This is what they did. It was one of the ways they kept peace. By moving the people around, keeping them from kind of uniting and fighting against them. So when the Israelites come back, when God brings them back to the promised land, there are some people living there. People that didn't necessarily belong. People that might not have wanted at some point to be there, but now this is where they live. And those people do not want the Israelites to succeed in this place. Those people have been living there for a while They have connections. Some of them have money and power and even weapons. So when it says, despite their fear of the people around them, here they are. It's been about seven months they've been living in this area, kind of as nomads. They have nothing in in terms of structure, army. They don't have any of that. And they know the people around them are thinking about attacking. That's what their fear is. And verse 3 says, despite the fear they faced, they're going to do something. And we'll look at what they do in a moment. But I, I like to read scripture, and you have to be careful with this, but I think, what would I have done? I, I would have you know, made sure to get some neighbors together. Hey, let's form an army. Like, we need to protect ourselves. Hey, let's build up some walls. Let's make sure we can. And they're going to build walls later. But right now, they're, they're unprotected. And you would think, we're afraid. Let's have a town hall meeting. Here, we're going to do something. We're going to protect ourselves. Let's fortify ourselves and take control of the situation. Or they might have said, we're out of here. 
It's not what I signed up for. This is way too hard. This is too difficult. I'm, I'm going to leave. Too difficult to stay. How do they respond? What we are told is that despite their fear, they build the altar of God. The altar. Not just any altar. This is not some random act of worship. This is the altar that would sit in front of the temple that was part of their day-to-day religious activity to make sacrifices to the Lord. And the NIV says it this way, despite the fear they faced, they built the altar. It's like, we have fear, but we're going to do this instead. That might actually be a little bit too soft. The ESV says for that they built the altar for fear was on them. The language is a little bit stronger in the sense of because they are afraid. They say, we are so afraid, we better build an altar. And we look at that and go, what? That doesn't make any sense. They face their fear with an act of worship. Build the altar. They respond with worship. Look back at verse 1 there. In verse 1, it says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. They get together, ragtag group of returnees coming into this area, and they've kind of scattered around the area. Some in the city, most of them probably in the outskirts, because it would have been a lot easier to take care of their family outside the city. But they make a decision in the seventh month. Let's go into the city where we won't be protected, and it's going to be hard to take care of our families, but let's join together. They made a conscious decision to leave behind their homes for a time to worship. And what they do is they build the altar. Let's pick it up in verse 3 again. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Remember the old Peanuts cartoons when the adults would speak? I know that's what most of us hear when we read passages like this about festivals and sacrifices and the Jewish temple. And it's, it's, it's like we just don't have a context to read it. And sometimes it can just sound like noise. I want to help you to filter through that noise and understand what's going on here is absolutely beautiful and so challenging. First of all, we have to understand the altar. This altar would sit just outside the temple, right outside the temple door. The temple was the dwelling place of God among his people. It's what made them different from any other people group. The Lord God, Yahweh, was there with them. But to do anything in the temple, the priest had to go past the altar, and there were always certain things they had to do with the altar, sacrifices. All of the Israelites at certain times of the year had to come to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices on the altar. The altar was the doorway into their relationship with God. Everything went through the altar. Why? 
because God is holy and they are sinners. And any relationship between God and sinners must take place through a sacrifice. It has to. Sin must be paid for. God baked that, wrote that right into the Old Testament, infused it into their culture, into their law, so that one day when Jesus came along and said, I'm the Lamb of God, they would go, oh, that's what that was about. But let's go back to the altar. The altar was basically a giant fire pit or a a, a huge grill. It was about five by five feet, four and a half feet. Actually, it was more like eight feet, seven and a half by seven and a half feet wide. So it was a perfect square and about four and a half feet high or so. And it had a, a grate underneath it and they would put fuel on their logs and then the animals would be sacrificed and put on top and basically cooked or burned away depending on the sacrifice. They would do fellowship offerings. This was an expression of, we are in a relationship with God. And as an expression of that relationship, we will offer a sacrifice. They would give thanksgiving offering. God has given us an abundant harvest. He has done something good for us. And as an expression of thanks, we will offer a sacrifice. They would give sin offerings. I really screwed up. I did something that was wrong. I broke the law and I know it. And I will offer a sacrifice. There were regular sacrifices day and night that the priest had to do just as an ongoing maintenance of their relationship with God. And then once a year on the day of atonement, which is actually right around the time that this is being written or or talked about, at least they would offer the sacrifice that would pay for all of the unknown sins and cleanse the dwelling place of God so that God could be with them. The interesting thing here is they don't actually partake in the day of atonement. They can't. Because the temple has not yet been built. But they're making the altar in the hopes and in the plans that they can now build the temple and worship God. But what I want you to hear out of this is that they are so focused on worship. Despite their fears, even in light of and because their fears, we are afraid of our situation. We are choosing to worship God. This is more important than our fear and the situation around us. One of the things they celebrate is the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a festival or a feast. It's feasting and festivaling. There's a good word, festivaling. Latin, look it up. Anyway, they they come together and the Feast of Tabernacles was a remembrance and kind of a reenactment of God rescuing them out of Egypt. They would move outside their homes and live in these kind of tent-like structures or or kind of a set of poles set up with some wicker around it. And they would live there and, and they would use it to remind themselves we were wanderers in the desert when God rescued us from Egypt. And they would use it to tell their kids We are the people saved out of Egypt. We are the people God took care of. We are the people that he called through the wilderness and brought into Israel. That is who we are. So it celebrated and reminded them of what God had done in the past. So many of the Jewish tabernacle temple functions, especially the festivals, were reminders and reenactments of what God had done in the past. This is where they're spending their time. Let's remind ourselves of who God is. Let's go back to what he's done in the past and apply it to to the present situation. This is such an important part of worship. 
Worship is not, I just want a good, happy feeling. Worship is a time to come together to say, God, remind us of who you are. Then help me see my situation and respond to it in light of who you are and trusting in who you are. And then we come to verses 7 through 9. And they start building the temple. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity, uh, from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Remember that. We're going to come back to that. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. So now the altar is built. They're beginning their day-to-day sacrifices. Next, they must build the temple, the dwelling place of God in their midst. It's the central point of their worship next to the altar. And what they do is so amazing. They appoint the Levites to supervise the building of the temple. The Levites were the part of the Israelites that were primarily the priests. They would oversee the temple, all the day-to-day sacrifices, everything that went on there. So on one hand, it is a practical matter. These were the guys that knew what should be done because they were the ones that understood the temple. But it's interesting, this word supervise here, It's used in other places or or is related to another word that in the Psalms is is, uh, translated the choir director or the director of worship. Their understanding of somebody overseeing a building project and their understanding of somebody leading a singing group in praise to God was directly connected. They saw these things in a similar way. They understood that worship is work. Worship is a project that is to be taken seriously and needs effort. It is not just feelings and emotions. It is work that must be done appropriately. They also understood that work is an act of worship. They looked at the physical work of rebuilding the temple as an act of worship to God. They didn't separate this idea of, well, this is physical work and this is spiritual worship. They said, no, it's all the same. And then in verses 10 through 11, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with the trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Understand, this is a construction site. They've just built a foundation. There's no grand structure here. It's a foundation. And they stop and they hold a worship service. And the priests get on their priestly garments and they lead the people in worship. 
Because all of this is about looking at their situation, saying we are afraid of what's going on, but we are choosing to focus on our Lord God Almighty and we will worship him. And it's not just here in Ezra that this is commanded. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Paul writes this, and it's the similar idea. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. You see what Paul's talking about? You have this stuff in your life. You have this stuff in your world. And yes, He's not saying you shouldn't be afraid. He's not saying we're foolish for ever being afraid. There is a place for looking at it and going, wow, that's bad. Or that's hard. Or that's scary. But he says, in that moment, you have a choice where to put your focus. Will we focus on the situation that makes us afraid? Or will we focus on the God who is sovereign over it? And he says, focus on the Lord. Put your attention there. Put all of your focus on who God is and what he has done. That's ultimately what it means to respond with worship is to set our focus on God. To ignore or for a moment say, I will not be distracted by the others thing, these other things in my life and in this world. I will focus on the Lord. I will take time to rehearse, recite, recount, read what God has done. That's what their festivals were. Friends, so many Christians today struggle in difficulties because we don't have the background knowledge of who God is and what he's done throughout the ages to apply to our situations. When you can go back and say, I'm struggling here and I don't know what's going to happen, I serve a God that rescued his people out of Egypt and he rose up this loser like Moses to oversee them who was trembling constantly and tried everything he could do to get out of the situation, yet God used him. If he did that, he can use me. If we could rehearse, recount what God has done. That's an act of worship that gives perspective in difficult times. Worship is an act of trusting in God. We take that and then say, I know God is at work now. I may not see it. Maybe the part of what God is doing and how he's going to carry us through this and how it's all going to end up, maybe that's not written yet that we can see. But God is at work. And I will trust that now because I've seen him do it in the past. Work is a choice then to join God in what he's doing. God says, I am a God who rescues people. That's what the festival of the tabernacles was all about. Who takes them out of a a situation where they're lost and helpless, takes them through great difficulty, sustains them to bring them to a promised land. These people are saying, we are now in a difficult situation. God has called us here. We will rehearse what God is doing and we will join him in that. As he did it for them, he can be here and do it for and through us. 
It's a history of God's work. Worship is participating, choosing to say, I will follow where God is leading, not just where I want to go. When faced with fear, we need to choose to worship. That's not easy. Please don't leave here going, oh, yeah, it's just the Christian response, super easy. Just worship the Lord. It's hard, hard, hard work to choose to worship God, especially in great difficulty. But there's one more thing we need to look at. This section is like this grand crescendo of worship, and it's amazing, and it's beautiful, and they've laid the foundation, and everything is going great. And then we get to verses 12 and 13. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted with joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. What's going on here? Some of these people are old enough to remember the previous temple. And they're looking at the foundation that's laid out and going, this is so much smaller. This is so much more insignificant than what God previously had for us. And they're struggling with that. I think there's another component to it as well, and that is understanding what got them to that point. The reason they don't have that other temple, the reason they had to leave their land in their first place, they sinned. And one of the things you're going to see in Ezra, and especially in Nehemiah, is a public proclamation of past sins. They're owning it. And they recognize that some of their difficulty is because of their past sins. Sin has consequences. Oh, God has forgiven them. He is restoring them. But they're also looking and going, oh, we chose such a harder road to get here because we didn't trust the Lord. And so there they are at the completion of the foundation. And some are joyous and some are weeping. Because there's a sense that something's not quite finished. Something is still yet to be done. Something is yet to be needed to really restore things the way it should be. And I, I gave you a heads up on this in the prelude to the sermons and the introduction. Throughout these books, one of the fundamental themes is disappointment. Something is not quite fulfilled, not quite right. There is something that is still necessary that this temple and this altar that they just built will never fulfill. And it looks forward a couple hundred years to when Jesus would come and he would say, I am the dwelling place of God. I am the temple. I am the Lamb of God. I am the perfect sacrifice. I am the one that restores you in your perfect relationship. Everything that happens in Ezra and Nehemiah is an unfinished project waiting for Jesus. And the reason I think that's so important is that I think in our own lives, we, we struggle when we see God's promises being fulfilled and his comfort coming, and yet it's just not quite complete. 
God, why, why not this? Why isn't this fixed? Why is there still this in the world? Why are we still struggling with this? We trust God's promise, but we don't always see the complete fulfillment. Maybe you want to be changed by God. And you cry out, God, you know the sin I'm struggling with. Take it away. And he comes in and he helps you in various ways, but it's incomplete. Why, God? We are like the people of Ezra's day. We are unfinished projects as well. Jesus Christ has come. Salvation has been accomplished. The price for our sin has been paid. We can be forgiven and accepted by the Lord God Almighty. But... There are promises yet to be fulfilled. Jesus is coming again. He's going to call us home. And all of these things, we say, what about this? What about this? God will take care of them perfectly forever in his time. But we live here. And we're going, God, I'm so joyous. But I'm also weeping over the unfinished project of this world in my life. Listen to the promise of Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Why were these people in this ragtag city with a ragtag group surrounded by enemies, why were they able to focus on worship? Because they were able to say, God's not done yet. But we trust that he is at work and we will keep on following him. And what we will do as we follow the Lord is worship. Trusting Him, proclaiming Him, being obedient to Him, worship. Jesus is coming. God's not done with you yet. You are an unfinished project. Trust the Lord's work in your life. Worship. You look at it in fear and say, I'm not done and I'm afraid. I get it. Choose to worship. Choose to focus on who God is, what he's doing in your life, what he's done in your life in the past. And even if you look there and say, I don't see anything good, go further back. Look at what he's done in other people's lives. Look at what he did in the New Testament. Look at what he did in the Old Testament. That same God is at work in your life. Trust him and fight fear with worship. Fight fear. It's a choice. In that moment of feeling like everything is falling apart and you're absolutely terrified. It's a choice to grab on with white knuckles to the truth of who God is through the power of his word and say, I will trust you and I will live my life in response to you. God is at work and God's work never fails. We need to fight our fear with worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, None of this is easy. And and the account that we're reading in Ezra and and we'll see in Nehemiah, it, it shows blatantly this was not easy for these people whatsoever. They experienced hardship. They experienced fear. They were threatened. Sometimes those threats were carried out. And yet they chose to focus on you. We see them struggle and we can identify with that. But we see your faithfulness to them. And God, I pray, I am sure, just knowing our world and situations and, and our, the way we are, I am sure there are those here that are struggling 
with fear, maybe overwhelming fear in their life right now. And the last thing they want to do is to think about focusing on you and worshiping you. And yet, God, that should be the first response to fear. Because we need a picture of you that is so great, so big, so in control, so powerful and at work that we can face our fears and declare with confidence, my God is at work and he's got this and I will trust in him. And God, help us to know that you're not done with us yet. You're not done with this world. You're not done with your church. You're not done with us as individuals. You are still at work and your promises will be carried out to completion. And along the way, may we trust you and live lives of diligent, purposeful worship. In your name we pray, amen.